Good afternoon and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Sprinkle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. On our first show of 2022, we're once again teaming up with the First Coast and the Island Institute for a final episode in our series about innovative people in Maine who are sustainably harvesting and growing products from the sea. First up, we're talking about Maine's groundfish fishery, past and present, and the potential for both fishermen and consumers to support a diverse local seafood marketplace. Let's let Galen Koch, the producer of From the Sea Up, take it from here. The Island Institute presents From the Sea Up, stories of sustainability from Maine's coastal and island communities. I'm your host and the producer of this series, Galen Koch. In this six-part limited series of From the Sea Up, we explore the diverse array of sustainable seafood that makes up Maine's coastal economy and supports the state's fishermen, aquaculturists, sea farmers, and working waterfront businesses. In this episode, we're talking about Maine's groundfish fishery. And you'll hear a bit about monkfish. These are two distinct fisheries, each with their own regulations, markets, and histories. I don't want to lump these fisheries together, but I do want to tell you the story of ground fishing in Maine and how eating multiple species of fish caught by Maine fishermen, species you maybe haven't tried or even heard of, like monkfish or redfish or Atlantic pollock, can help sustain our fisheries. The first thing you may be thinking is, well, what is groundfish? Is monkfish not groundfish? Is groundfish a technical term? In short, yes. The fishery is actually the Northeast multi-species fishery, and it's comprised of 13 specific fish species. Atlantic cod, haddock, yellowtail flounder, pollock, American place, witch flounder, white hake, windowpane flounder, winter flounder, Acadian redfish, Atlantic halibut, Atlantic wolffish, and ocean pout. If you know anything about the fishery, you probably know that there was a time when certain groundfish stocks specifically Atlantic cod and haddock, were doing really, really well in the Gulf of Maine. For over a hundred years, ground fishing was the fishery in the state and region. And then the fish were gone. Of course, that didn't happen overnight. This is why the groundfish story is so complicated. And if you really want to dig in, there are books about cod and great written histories online. But here's my brief catch-you-up-to-speed history. In the 1800s, wooden schooners caught cod by baited line, salting them and shipping the fish internationally. 
The Industrial Revolution brought steam-powered trawlers to the fishery, and ground fishermen began catching haddock in unbelievable amounts in the 1920s and 1930s. The trends in what fish were caught are all tied to what could be sold and how it was processed. In the 1920s, processors began filleting, freezing, and shipping fish. Salt cod was out, haddock fillets were in. And despite all of those boats trawling for haddock, there were, at the time, no regulations. Not on mesh size or fish size or how many fish you could catch. The 1960s brought another change in the fishery. International fish factories, or distant water fleets, from the USSR and Japan and Europe started fishing for haddock, hake, and cod on Georgia's bank and in the Gulf of Maine. This prompted government intervention, and in 1976, the Magnuson-Stevens Act established an Exclusive Economic Zone, or EEZ, and asserted U.S. control of waters 200 miles out. The U.S. was eager to participate in the trawl fishery, sending out small versions of the factory trawlers. But with many fish stocks already depleted by international fleets, the frenzy of domestic ground fishing in the early 1980s sealed the fate of the industry. Cotton haddock stocks all but disappeared. And so, in an effort to rebuild fish stocks, an effort that really came too late, there were dozens of regulations instituted between the late 90s to today. So where does that leave the groundfish industry in 2021? Well, most of the infrastructure in the state that supported the fishery is gone. And tighter restrictions and the cost of fishing led many fishermen to stop ground fishing. But some fish species have come back after decades of incredibly strict management. Here's Kyle Foley, the senior program manager of the Sustainable Seafood Program at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. We did have some collapses and we did see these crashes in some of our really key species like cod and haddock. But what has changed is that our fisheries management and regulatory system has really strengthened since then over those past few decades. And we've actually been able to bring back a number of those species that did crash and were not doing so well. I think it is it is hard because the... The sad part of that story is that a lot of fishermen left the fishery during those years when there were really severe restrictions um, in order to allow those fisheries to bounce back. A lot of people lost their livelihoods fishing for ground fish. We lost a lot of infrastructure in the state. At one of the last strongholds of state infrastructure, the Portland Fish Exchange on Portland's working waterfront, you can still find boats offloading catch in the early morning. Fishermen like Brian Pierce of North Yarmouth come in with fish packed in ice in the hulls of fishing vessels. In order to sell the Pollock, Hake, Monkfish, and Haddock caught in his nets, Brian needs access to either a dealer or processor who will buy the fish outright, or he'll sell them at the fish exchange's wholesale auction, where bidding will determine the price of the ground fish. The auction and infrastructure at the Portland Fish Exchange is vital to the fishery. Fish are offloaded in buckets and sorted by species to sell at the online auction. And sometimes a catch can yield really great prices. Here's Brian Pierce. Certain people love that sort of adrenaline rush you get when you do score, because it happens. You know, it happens a lot less than, than it doesn't. But, uh, you know, you can come in and the, and the circumstances are just right. You can have a good catch and hit a $3 average. And oh my God, it's like you, it's like, you know, going to Vegas and, and hitting the bar, you know? It's like, 
ding, 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 ding. And some people really just thrive to, to do that. They'll accept all the, the bad trips to get that one good one. But in recent years, lowering demand and prices of some ground fish have led fishermen like Brian to switch to more reliable markets, like monkfish, even if the price for that fish might be lower. Monkfish has historically been sold overseas or to domestic Asian markets as a whole fish or tail. Typically, the whole, the whole price is a steady price. It doesn't ever fluctuate. It, and if it's going to drop, they, they tell you, and it will, it's like lobsters. All right, it dropped 10 cents or it dropped, went up 5 cents, something like that. So if Brian decides to go monk fishing, he can leave the docks knowing within a couple of cents what the price for a whole fish will be when he gets back. You bring in ground fish into this building, you have no clue. You have no clue. You think you might. You think you might have it figured out. You leave the dock, you see a pattern, oh, the price is good, the price is good. You sneak out, you get lucky, you score a good catch, you come in, guess what? You get half. You get half what it was when you left, what you were anticipating. How many times that's happened to me, I can't, I can't even imagine to, to guess, but a lot. It's a hard pill to swallow because, it, you know, it sets you up for disappointment. And you just, you know, you know, for me to know roughly have a pretty good idea what I'm going to get before I leave is, is worth, a, worth an awful lot of money. So that's another reason I switched to monk fishing. These price fluctuations in the groundfish fishery have led marine industry leaders and organizations to try to seek out new markets and strategies for selling and processing locally caught fish. Because despite looking like it had hit rock bottom, there is a future for the groundfish industry in Maine. It just might look a little different than it did 100 or even 40 years ago. The management of the groundfishing industry has obviously changed a lot. Now there are area closures, quotas on each of the 20 groundfish stocks, and regulated mesh sizes and minimum fish size requirements by species. The fishery is also closely monitored, with both in-person and camera monitoring on fishing vessels. These strict regulations created, essentially, an entirely different kind of fishery. We, we thought that there was going to always be big boats coming into Portland landing lots and lots of pounds of fish. This is Ben Martens. Ben is the president of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, or MCFA, an organization that works to support fishermen by advocating for fishing communities and the environmental health of the Gulf of Maine. And what we're struggling through right now is the transition to a, you know, a ground fish economy that is built upon the idea of small boats, high quality, and, you know, honestly, it's seasonal, right? Like, we don't have, if we don't have the big boats coming in, we aren't going to have the consistent source of fish coming across the docks that is needed to commoditize the fish. And so that's where building the connections to our community focusing on projects that are increasing the value and the quality of our fish, and recognizing that ground fish is an amazing opportunity for our state. One of the things that our organization has been working on since it was started almost 15 years ago was we want better regulations in place and better science taking place to lead to a better um, situation for the ground fish fishery when it comes to the abundance of fish in the ocean. The management of the ground fish fishery in Maine is, as I said, really complicated. And this is a podcast about sustainable fisheries. So instead of trying to get into the details of how the fishery is managed, let's talk about the basics. Can you go to the store right now and buy responsibly harvested ground fish? Here's Kyle Foley again. 
We are lucky today that we have some really strong fisheries management. We didn't, that's not always been the case in the U.S. We've only really been managing fisheries for about 50 years or 40 years here. But today we've really managed to strengthen our fisheries management. We have a lot of healthy and abundant fisheries. Kyle's work at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, or GMRI, focuses on identifying what fish species are sustainable. The most basic definition when I think about fishery sustainability is just that sustainability means we want to leave more fish in the water for the future. We want to make sure that when fishermen are harvesting from the ocean, they're leaving enough fish in the water that that species and population can reproduce and replenish itself and that it's not going to get depleted. GMRI has a set criteria to verify sustainable seafood species. So on that list, in the Gulf of Maine groundfish fishery, you have American plaice, Atlantic pollock, redfish, white hake, and remarkably, haddock. But just because a fish isn't verified sustainable doesn't mean you can't or shouldn't eat it. It's not necessarily an indication that people need to completely avoid eating that fish. And with cod in particular, that fishery is being so strictly and tightly managed and fishermen are allowed to catch such a small amount of cod and that small amount that they're allowed to catch is being informed by scientific advice when the regulators make those decisions and so fishermen are already um, suffering from the loss of a lot of income from cod and I wouldn't want to see them further penalized by people avoiding eating that small amount of cod that they are allowed to catch and land. So when I see local cod available or on a menu, you know, I'm not afraid to eat that cod. I, I don't feel uncomfortable doing that because I know that it is being really strictly um, monitored and, and managed. I want to take a moment and kind of untangle the word sustainable. I say that word a lot in this series, and it can feel kind of jargony. Like, what does that mean? We have fisheries that are environmentally sustainable, monkfish and certain species of groundfish. But sustainable fisheries mean something else, too. Sustaining a working waterfront economy is another aspect of sustainability. We can support the efforts by fishermen to responsibly harvest seafood. You know, fishermen want there to be fish for their their own livelihoods long into the future, and so sustainability is important to them too, and making sure that we do have fisheries here for generations to come so that their kids can keep working on the water as well. So sustainability is important for a variety of reasons and not just some of the typical ones. In order to have responsibly managed fisheries, we need fishermen to make money. If we want the main economy to include a marine economy, then we can directly support responsibly harvest Maine fish in a really easy and simple way. Seek out and buy that fish. As a region across the Gulf of Maine, we still do have really healthy and abundant ground fish today. Um, and it still has a ton of potential. There's so much of the ground fish quotas that are not being harvested and what's in the marketplace and what is sometimes easier for a restaurant or a grocery store to get its hands on is ground fish from other parts of the world. And without consumers asking for local fish and demonstrating that they really want to see that local ground fish, it's hard for those restaurants or, or markets to, you know, to make decisions about seeking out the local product. So it's really important that people know that we do have a lot of potential still for ground fish here and 
to ask for it and to look for it and and when you see it to you know to say I'm so glad you have local ground fish this is really great or love to see that you have local haddock or local redfish or monkfish. A great way to find out if the seafood you're buying is caught in the Gulf of Maine is to just ask where the fish is coming from at your local grocery store or fish market. In Portland, Maine, there are fish markets like Harbor Fish and Free Range selling fresh local products. And if you happen to live out of the state or in a town with limited access to quality seafood, you can order frozen fillets of monkfish, cod, haddock, and hake from trusted processors like Truefin or Luke's Lobster. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Today, we're featuring the last of our stories from the Island Institute podcast series called From the Sea Up, highlighting sustainable Maine seafood. Please note that today's show was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls today. Now, back to the story about Maine groundfish. The global seafood supply chain is a little confusing. I live in Maine. You may have caught that by now. So why is cod from Norway or haddock from Iceland cheaper at my local grocery store than Maine cod or haddock? I think a a pretty common statistic out there is that we import over 90% of the seafood we consume in the United States. This is Jen Levin, the CEO of Truefin. And the vast majority of the seafood is coming from huge volume fisheries and farms around the world. So think about farm-raised salmon, tilapia, shrimp, uh, which are the three, three of the four most consumed seafood items in the United States. But even when you look at haddock from Iceland, most of the haddock sold in the U.S. is coming from Iceland. And they have a huge volume fishery compared to what we're able to produce here. And so for the larger retailers and food service folks across the United States, they are able to depend on haddock from Iceland or say cod from Norway. And just as our cod quota was getting slashed as, as our waters are warming in the Gulf of Maine, Norway was seeing record high cod harvests. And we also see cod out of Alaska. So it makes sense that all of these seafood items are coming from other parts of the world um, because of just the pure volume that they're able to produce and the consistency with which they're able to produce it. That volume and consistency drives the price down for domestic U.S. products like Maine cod and haddock. Even if we harvested all of our fish quotas, we're just not a huge volume fishery in the grand scheme of things. So setting that kind of fact aside, which is that we cannot compete on volume and which is making it difficult for our local fisheries to access markets. Um, And so the demand goes down and then the price goes down, which is why the average price paid for fin fish last year, I think, was 85 cents a pound. And fishermen just, again, literally cannot afford to go fishing at those prices. What Jen realized while working at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute was that while Maine fishermen can't compete with volume fisheries, they can compete with high-quality fisheries. Trufin incubated at GMRI, and the company provides high-quality, sustainable seafood from the New England region. So we had an opportunity to bring some experts in from outside of the region, even outside of the country, to train us and fishermen 
on handling practices that accomplish much better quality product. And with that quality, we're able to market it to more discerning buyers and, and who are able to pay more for it, who do pay more for fish that meets their quality standard. And that means that we're able to pay the boats more. So we're able to guarantee prices to fishermen for catch that meets our quality standards. And a lot of the fishermen we work with are able to go fishing and continue to make a living on the water because we are there at guaranteeing these prices. Some of whom wouldn't, like they would have, they would have left the fishery if they didn't know that they could make a living on the water and make a paycheck. I'm, I'm really pleased that we've been very successful in helping to re-educate the American consumer from the home cook all the way to the high-end chef about the diversity and, and, the, and the quality of catch we're able to accomplish right here from the Gulf of Maine. And for fishermen like Brian Pierce, that added value can make all the difference. As a fisherman, I mean, I would personally would way rather catch less for less fish and get more for it. You know, that you know, even if it was the same amount, if I caught, you know, a thousand pounds, I got two dollars a pound, or two thousand pounds, I got a dollar a pound. I'd way rather handle the thousand. You know, uh, it's just better. It's better all the way around. Less wear and tear. It's just you know, and it's better for the fishery. You know, You're not taking that many out. But it's not just high-end sales that will help support fishermen here in Maine. There are initiatives by GMRI and the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association to encourage schools, colleges, and other high-volume buyers to purchase local Maine seafood instead of seafood from overseas. Not only to increase sales of sustainable fish here in Maine, but to entice consumers to seek out and prepare more fish. One initiative that was born out of the dire circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic has led to an amazing partnership between fishermen, organizations, and Maine communities. The COVID pandemic shut down access to restaurant markets, and as a result, groundfish and monkfish were going unsold at the docks. There was nowhere to move that product. Here's Ben Martens of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. You know, I'd love to take credit and say this was my idea, but at the end of the day, we started working with fishermen to say, what do you need? How do we make this happen? And they start putting you know, ideas on the table, and then we go and implement, we build them out, we flesh them out. Um, and so that's, that's how we started to figure out that there were real problems. Uh, and when fishermen are telling us that they can't get paid for their fish, they're telling us that you know, it's not being sold when they bring it into the dock. Um, that's, that's when we can start thinking about how, how things might work and working directly with fishermen to build out solutions to those problems. At the same time that fishermen were not able to sell their products, a protein shortage was taking place all over the U.S. with grocery shelves empty. And so we started working on this idea of what, what if we could pay our fishermen uh, you know, a, a steady price to go out and catch the fish and then put it into our local food insecure um, you know, system and, and get it donated to different, different groups. This initiative, called Fishermen Feeding Mainers, got seafood from boats directly to Mainers in need. We built this program in response to the COVID-19 pandemic and economic crisis, but we are seeing significant benefit 
to you know, providing some opportunity for fishermen when prices go down. And there's always uh, a cyclic nature in prices as well. So there, there would be other opportunities when having a stable price would be beneficial to um, the working waterfront economy of Maine. Um, but to be you know, totally honest, one of the pieces of this story that is you know, sad is we have more demand for our product, for donation, than we can keep up with. And so there's a very, very real need within our communities to get, you know, fresh, high quality food into those in need. And so I, I really have started to see this as a way for our organization to give back to our broader communities um, and impact our lives within our coastal communities and inland Maine and all around um, in a way that we had never really intended as an organization. But we've seen a lot of value. Um, we've seen a lot of value for the fishermen when it comes to like them knowing who is getting their fish, who's eating their fish, supporting their friends and neighbors and those that they don't know but you know are getting to know. Um, we're building bridges within our communities. MCFA was also building bridges with partners like Trufin, who processed the donated seafood. At that time, in the COVID pandemic, Trufin was really struggling to find markets for their products. Here's Jen Levin. And it's just a really wonderful partnership and service of food producers who've really been struck by COVID, as well as uh, food insecure populations who've also been struck by COVID. It's a brilliant, brilliant program, and we're just so pleased that we get a chance to contribute in any way that we can. You know, one of the real values that we're seeing with this program is we are breaking down some of the barriers between the fishermen who are catching the fish and the local food system. We are seeing a lot of value to reminding people about the role that seafood can and should play in um, our food system. The work of these organizations and businesses allows for more access to local seafood. And for Ben Martens, Increasing awareness about what fish is available can also encourage Mainers to invest in our working waterfronts, to invest in the continued diversification of our fisheries, an investment that will enable the coast of Maine and its fisheries to adapt to the changing climate and rising water temperature in the Gulf of Maine. You know, we, we need to be reinvesting in the opportunity of ground fish right now so that we are ready for when the you know, when the ocean responds in the near future. And, um, and, I, and I say this because regulations are getting better, science is going to be getting better, and we have fishermen that are seeing fish out in the ocean in places and in ways that they have not seen before. And so I, I, I'm really, really optimistic about the future of our um, ocean ecosystems and the groundfish fishery, but we aren't doing the stewardship that we need to be doing on shore to protect the infrastructure, to invest in the fishermen, to diversify the fishing businesses of Maine, to take advantage of that um, when the opportunity comes. And as consumers, we can invest in that working waterfront by buying local Maine fish, and maybe even eating fish you've never tried or even heard of. This is one of the missions of the Sustainable Seafood Program at GMRI, creating markets and desirability for underloved fish species. And as the Gulf of Maine waters warm, species and fish stocks may change. There may be local fish that was not previously abundant in Maine. Here's Kyle Foley. 
And I think what it means as a consumer is that we just need to be more flexible eaters and eat what is actually coming out of the Gulf of Maine. And that's something that we can be doing right now with fisheries that we've had here forever, like monkfish or redfish or you know other species that maybe we haven't always paid as much attention to. Um, but what's important for, for fishermen's viability in a climate, you know, a different climate future is that they have a lot of different options and that they can diversify the options of what they can go fishing for. Species like monkfish and pollock and redfish are flavorful and simple to prepare. Being flexible eaters and informed consumers will enable our state's fishermen to continue to catch responsibly harvested fish and encourages a diverse local marketplace. The story of the groundfish industry is one of a changing environment and a changing relationship to how we, as humans, interact with our natural resources. And it is also a story of hope, with forward-thinking organizations and businesses working to increase demand and value for Maine seafood, there could be a very bright future for groundfish and monkfish in Maine's marine economy. And if you look to the future even a little bit further down the line, the number one thing that we are going to, um, that gives Maine a distinct advantage in the marketplace is there are more people who want better food. And seafood is Maine's true opportunity when it comes to tapping into our like core competencies of what we're good at. We are good at catching fish. We are good at catching seafood. We're good at making seafood. Uh, we're good at producing fantastic food. That is what we are known for. And we can really be setting ourselves up to be, you know, I, I don't know what the, the term would be, right? Like we aren't the bread basket of the Northeast, but like the, the fish basket, the fish tote, I don't know. I am extremely hopeful and optimistic about the groundfish fishery, and um, and I think it provides a real opportunity for our state into the, the not-too-distant future. Our story about groundfish was the first in today's two-story episode of Coastal Conversations here on WERU Community Radio. Today's stories come from the Island Institute podcast called From the Sea Up, produced by Galen Koch of the First Coast. Let's move now from groundfish to the mysterious and internationally regulated and powerful Atlantic bluefin tuna, a fishery that leaves a lot of consumers puzzled. Here again is Galen Koch to help us untangle the tuna story. In this final installment of our Sustainable Seafood series, we're going big and we're going wild. We're talking about the mysterious, internationally regulated, nail-bitingly strong and powerful Atlantic bluefin tuna. I say nail-bitingly because the reputation of this fish and fishery is one of high drama. So high that National Geographic has sustained eight seasons of the reality show Wicked Tuna on that drama. Despite making great television, the bluefin tuna fishery is a fishery that leaves a lot of consumers puzzled. Is it okay to eat? What's the difference between bluefin caught in the U.S. and the same species caught in Europe? I'm one of those consumers who felt confused about bluefin tuna. I love tuna. I love it raw. I love it seared. But I didn't even realize it's bluefin that I crave the most. I've been that person in the fish market hemming and hawing over which tuna to buy because I just don't know. 
And over the years, I've watched the documentaries and television shows, heard reports of overfishing and negligent or downright illegal fishing practices globally, and I really wasn't sure how to feel about eating bluefin, or any tuna for that matter. And so this week, we're going to learn a lot about the Atlantic bluefin tuna fishery and hear firsthand from fishermen and researchers why this fish belongs in a series about sustainable seafood. My own Atlantic bluefin tuna education started pretty recently. On a balmy morning in September, I met Dr. Walt Golett at the Casco Bay Bluefin Bonanza in South Portland. Walt is an assistant professor in the School of Marine Sciences at the University of Maine in Orono, and he leads the Pelagic Fisheries Lab at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. When I meet Walt, he's elbow deep in a fresh tuna head, a head that was carefully handled and delivered by the fisherman who just pulled into the dock with a 600-pound bluefin. So anything that can grow up to 12 feet and weigh almost a ton is something that people are, are automatically going to be drawn to, right? We're all sort of drawn to the megavertebrates, the big things, the rhinos and elephants and lions, and the ocean is no different. And so tunas are these large fish. Um, as people learned more about them, some of the really unique features that set bluefin apart from other species of fish, one is that they're warm-bodied. So that's a really unique feature. When you have a warm body and you have a large size and you have this wonderful body that's just totally adapted to be a long-distance swimmer, um, it gives them the ability to travel all over the ocean. And that's one of the other really interesting aspects about them is that with the exception of the extremes, very, very cold, Arctic, and very, very hot, tropics, these fish really don't have any boundaries. And in fact, they, they've even been found off of Brazil back in the 60s where the water is exceptionally warm. So their size, their physiology, and their movements, I think, are the three big things that people are just drawn to. Walt expertly cuts into the tuna head with a saw, revealing two small, almost imperceptible cavities. He reaches inside and extracts the inner ear bones of the tuna, two tiny calcium carbonate structures called otoliths. Walt and his team, Isabel C. and Sammy Nadeau, extract the otoliths and a tissue sample from the tuna head, and they record the location and time the fish was caught. That information is provided by the fishermen. The team isn't usually doing this processing at the Springpoint Marina in South Portland. They're usually set up behind GMRI, where they process thousands of tuna heads per season. I'm working with Lisa Kerr here at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, and then also working with Drs. John Walter and Matt Loretta at the Southeast Fisheries Science Center. We're using two techniques, otolith chemistry and genetics, to understand where the fish have actually come from or where they originated from spawned. Dr. Lisa Kerr is a research scientist at GMRI. She studies fish populations and population dynamics to aid and inform sustainable management practices. And with tuna, that's an especially complex management system for a particularly dynamic fish population. Here's Lisa. When you catch these fish, they all look the same. You can't tell if it's a Mediterranean fish or a Gulf of Mexico origin fish just by looking at it. Bluefin tuna do not have one ubiquitous stock or population. There are three distinct bluefin tuna populations in the world, Pacific, Southern, and Atlantic. In the Atlantic population, there are two stocks, the Western Atlantic bluefin, which spawns in the Gulf of Mexico, and possibly the Slope Sea, 
and spans the eastern coast of the U.S. all the way to Newfoundland and the eastern Atlantic bluefin, which spawns in the Mediterranean and is found in the Med and oceans off of Europe. That eastern stock is more abundant than the western population off the U.S. coast, but bluefin are a highly migratory species, and they don't necessarily adhere to the imaginary line imposed on the eastern and western stocks. That's where Lisa and Walt's otolith research comes in. We work to collect heads um, from bluefin tuna, so essentially something that would be a, a kind of a byproduct or waste after the fish, or, fish is harvest, and we extract um, the inner ear bone of the fish, and this is kind of a calcium carbonate structure in the head of the fish. And what's unique about the structure is it, lay da- it lays down banding patterns that correspond to the age of the fish. So much like a tree lays down rings and you can count those rings, that's what an otolith does in a fish. And so we can age the fish by looking at that bone. The other unique thing is that it actually preserves a record of the water chemistry the fish has experienced over its lifetime. So it's like sealing that in uh, as it grows. And when we analyze the very center of that bone for the chemical composition, we can tell you if this fish you know, was born in the Gulf of Mexico or the Mediterranean based on the water chemistry being so different from those areas. And that's really how we get to start to disentangle the origin of fish that might look the same when they come up over the side of the boat. But when we do this kind of analysis, we can start to understand the relative abundance of each of these populations in our fishery. We know that they go across the Atlantic from one stock to the other. And to manage them effectively, really what you want to understand is what's that rate? What's the percentage of fish from one side of the Atlantic going to the other and vice versa? If there are a lot of Eastern Atlantic fish that are coming to the Western Atlantic and you don't know that that is occurring, then you get this impression that maybe the Western stock is doing better than it actually is. And instead of having an overabundance of of this stock, Perhaps what you're seeing is an overflow or a spillover of the eastern stock into the west. That data that Lisa, Walt, and their teams gather at their labs at GMRI is extremely precise and extremely important to good fisheries management. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at weru.org. Please note that today's show was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. Today, we're featuring a couple of stories from the Island Institute podcast series called From the Sea Up, highlighting stories of Maine seafood and the people who harvest and grow it on our coast. Now, let's get back to our story about gathering data about Atlantic bluefin tuna. To gather that data requires the participation and investment of hundreds of fishermen and dealers all along the east coast of the United States. Fishermen like Pete Speeches. Pete fishes out of Portland, and he not only supplies tuna heads to Walt Golett, but he also tags tuna for scientific research. You have to have the right people doing your research, and that's where it's important for guys like Walt, which he's great about soliciting good people to do tagging for him, to do research. He's getting heads. I think they said they've done over 10,000 heads processed that since his program started, which means 20,000 ear bone otoliths to research on and tell you where these fish came and went and where they spent their time and, and see with science, with actual science, what's where these fish are going and what they're doing. 
but I've always just always wanted to have an understanding and I think the only way to preserve this fishery is to understand these fish and be able to manage them properly. The regulation of bluefin tuna is a global effort and one that seems, especially to an outsider like me, pretty convoluted. Part of what makes the management of bluefin so difficult is that the fish cross international boundaries. The total allowable catch, or tack, of bluefin in the Atlantic is determined by the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tuna, or ICAT. Here's Walt. That tack is established by ICAT in the Atlantic for us. Then that is given to the United States, to, to NOAA, United, the National Marine Fisheries Service, and as I said, they will distribute it to the user groups. The user groups in the U.S. Atlantic fishery include anglers, recreational boats, pelagic longliners, once in a while they catch bluefin, so they have a small allowable bycatch quota, commercial rod and reel fishermen, commercial harpooners, and purse saners. But purse saning for tuna has all but phased out in the U.S. So NOAA distributes the quota determined by ICAT to those specific user groups. That quota is going to get caught. It's going to get caught regardless. There can be discussions, and there are rather lengthy and sometimes heated discussions, about whether or not the quota that ICAT sets is the most appropriate one. Was it scientifically driven? Was it politically driven? Was there a little bit of both? And sure, there can be discussions on that, but the bottom line is that there's a quota that's implemented by a, by a group of professionals, by the way, that come from not just the United States. ICAT is a consensus body, which means the United States just can't unilaterally go in and say, well, we want 2,000 metric tons of tuna. It doesn't work like that. The research that Lisa and Walt conduct at GMRI directly impacts quota decisions, along with other determining factors, but it's not just the data from U.S. fisheries that factors in. Here's Lisa. You have scientists from the U.S., from Canada, from Japan, from um, all over Europe. All these countries that participate in the fishery, both in the East and West, come together to conduct the stock assessment. And everyone's sort of bringing their data to the table, combining it, working together to get the best estimate um, for how many bluefin we think are in the East and the West. And so I think it's a really rigorous process that happens, but there's a lot of uncertainty that it's really hard to get around. So there's this uncertainty about mixing that we're still trying to account for how many fish come from where. And then there's just, you know, obviously a lot of uncertainty with feeling like you have sufficient data collected on something that has such a complex life history and is able to move in, in such large scales. If you have any knowledge of the bluefin fishery, you may remember that there was a time when the fish was far less abundant in the Gulf of Maine. Atlantic bluefin tuna has had a real comeback, and the wild-caught fish, like we get in the Gulf of Maine, is a smart and sustainable seafood choice, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Those wild-caught fishing methods, harpoon and rod and reel, along with limits on how many fish can be caught, restricted fishing days, and strict quotas have allowed the population to bounce back. There's been a lot of focus on rebuilding in the past decade, and I think we're now starting to see some real positive signs coming out of the stock. And um, there's still a lot of a lot to understand with bluefin tuna because it's very complex. We're still learning new things. Um, what's nice to see it that there is evidence of kind of this increasing availability of the resource to the fishery. 
And nature has something to do with it, too. As I said before, tuna is extremely migratory. They're also big fish, apex predators, and they travel to find fatty fish to feed on, like mackerel and herring. Here's Pete's speeches. I've been involved with fisheries research ever since I started, and I've been on the AP panel, worked worked closely with the AP panel. I'm on the board of directors of the American Bluefin Tuna Association. So research and science uh, is a hot button for me. The fishery, when it lulled in New England, it wasn't the fish were gone. The fish just never came inshore is what the final theories were, is that they stayed offshore for whatever reason. Um, what, we have always been very strong in conservation. We have the biggest measure in the world for legal fish to be sold in the United States. And we, we, did, we made a few mistakes in New England uh, with forage fish, about how the forage fish were being caught, which will drive it, you know, if there's not, they're only here to eat and spawn. That's what fish do. So if there's not food here, they're not going to be here. A less abundant stock of forage fish could have been one reason Atlantic bluefin weren't coming in to feed in the Gulf of Maine. It's not clear. Their habits and lifestyle remain very mysterious. But what is clear is that right now, after years of stock rebuilding practices and some changes in the fish populations in Maine waters, there are a lot more bluefin tuna feeding in the Gulf of Maine. The herring fishery has sustained incredible declines over the last few years, so much so that there's hardly any quota left to catch. And how that ties into bluefin is I mentioned before that they swim a long distance and they've got this souped up metabolism. Well, when they get here, they're ready to eat. <laughs> it's like, I, I need to eat something and I need to eat it quick. Bluefin are coming here to eat and they're coming here to eat stuff that's really fatty. It's like going out in the ocean and just eating double cheeseburgers all the time, right? That's what they, that's what they want. And so with the decline of herring, one of, the, one of the potential outcomes is that, well, our bluefin might go. They might just disappear. But ironically, they're not. They're here in really big numbers. And so I've got um, students in the lab who are actually looking at diet and foraging ecology, and they're finding that, in fact, the, the diet of bluefin actually has changed. It's, it's gone from a herring-dominant diet now over to a diet that's dominant, dominated by squids. And even things like Atlantic menhaden, which historically were here in big numbers, they disappeared for about two decades or so and now have reappeared, and they are becoming more of a staple for the bluefin diet. So it's really amazing how sort of nature fills in the voids. Uh, when it needs to. Studying the foraging habits of Atlantic bluefin is an ongoing project for Walt and his team. This research shines a light on just how intricately woven the ocean's ecosystem is. Regulations on other fisheries, like herring or menhaden, called pogies in Maine, affect other fish, not just fishermen. And temperature changes in the Gulf of Maine due to climate change affect fish migration patterns and maybe even the bluefin tuna's diet. There are so many unknowns in the ways in which our ocean ecosystem will change in the next few decades. Unknowns that make Walt and Lisa's research critically important for understanding Maine's ocean and fisheries. As bluefin stocks rebuild in the Gulf of Maine, Fisherman Pete Speeches has noticed the change. Pete has been fishing for tuna in New England for almost 40 years, and he's seen big shifts in the electronics used, the fish prices, and how many fishermen are going after bluefin. You know, we just have never seen so many fish as we've seen in the last 10 years. It's, there's days when you can catch three or four a day without any, any issue, and the, you can tell that this is a recovered fishery. 
if you just watch how fast we fill our quota. This last year we filled our June, July, August quota before the 1st of August. Now, that's, there's a lot of boats fishing to do that, but that means there's a lot of boats catching and landing fish as well. There are more boats going fishing for tuna, but that doesn't change the total allowable catch. Like Pete said, the outcome is that the seasonal quota fills faster, so fishermen, ultimately, have less days to fish for bluefin. If you mention bluefin tuna to someone who's not too familiar with the fishery in Maine, you may hear about fish selling for hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars in Japan. This is arguably true. There is one fish a year that sells for an exorbitant price. But that bluefin, caught in the Sea of Japan, has nothing to do with price setting or even market prices. And it's Pacific bluefin, not Atlantic. It's bought as a show of prowess by business tycoons, the first bluefin from the Sea of Japan bought at auction on the first of the new year. Some of the interest in the bluefin fishery is driven by stories, legends, and even inaccuracies. Like the idea that you'll get tens of thousands of dollars for a fish, or even catch a thousand-pound fish. Both scenarios aren't the norm. There was a time when these fish were valuable and... You know, we didn't catch as many per boat then as we do now per vessel. People think that they can go out and catch a 15 or a $20 a pound fish when the average last year was $7 a pound or less. With the price of lobster hitting $6 per pound this year, that price of $7 per pound for tuna doesn't seem very dramatic. And sure, they are huge fish, but these fish aren't always selling for $15,000. But for Pete, and for many other fishermen who've seen the ins and outs of the Atlantic bluefin fishery in Maine, their fishing trips aren't motivated by big dollar signs. It is a way to make a living. And it is a true sportsman's fishery. In Maine and northern New England, we usually anchor up, and it's a process of, of uh, finding those fish, and hopefully one bites your hook, and then we take care of it, we catch the fish, we dress it, and we bring it into our buyer. If it's multiple fish a day, then we can stay, go back to our anchor if it's productive or move and catch our second or third if that's what we're allowed to catch. Right now we catch one, we, we, get, you know, we haul our anchor up, we come in, we sell it, we go back out if it's another open day. If it's a closed day, we, we take the day off and wait for the next open day that we're allowed to fish. We're allowed to fish four days a week now. We can't, we can't fish on Tuesdays and we can't fish on Fridays and Saturdays. For Pete's beaches, there's hope for the tuna fishery in Maine, not only in the rebounding fish stocks and the more accurate science, but in increased local interest in the fish as a delicious Maine product. It's been great. The people I work with lately have been buying my fish and from a few other boats and keeping them all local. And it's, a, it's great to walk into a local restaurant in Portland and have local fish that you landed the day before be on their menu. It doesn't have to go to Japan and, and deal with all the, all the pieces of the, of the puzzle of, of transportation and cost and what, you know, there's a bunch of different people that have their, want to take their, their cut out of the fish, so the margin has to be way higher for the fishermen to make any money. It's just a way cleaner fishery to have, you know, just like a lobster. A lobster should come off a lobster boat in Maine and be served up at a local restaurant as a lobster roll when people want it. It shouldn't have to be bought from somewhere else. You know, we shouldn't be serving Florida lobster, rock lobster in Maine. Thankfully, tuna is slowly getting there. When I started this journey trying to understand Atlantic bluefin, I'll admit that I lumped 
all tuna together, whether that's albacore or skipjack or bluefin or yellowtail. But understanding the intricacies of global bluefin populations has led me to one conclusion. I want to eat bluefin caught here in Maine and along the United States' eastern coast. One of the reasons is that these U.S. fisheries are strictly monitored and regulated, and fishermen work hard to catch these fish, either with rod and reel or harpoon. Yeah, you know, when a fish bites, it's it's uh, that's what hooks people on this fishery. It's a very high uh, emotional moment. You know, the rod screams off. You know, the rod goes down, cripples over, and the fish is screaming. It could be doing 40 miles an hour away from the boat, and uh, all all hell breaks loose. You know, you're trying to get off the anchor, get the boat started. You got to chase the fish. If you're, you don't have enough line and reel up your other lines so you don't cut them off and try to keep the fish out of other people's lines and away from their anchors and away from lobster gear and it's it's uh it's what hooks people once you see a bluefin tuna bite you've never seen another fish bite like that you know even a thousand pound marlin on a troll gear is nothing like a bluefin they're the strongest fish they're the fastest fish they're the biggest fish it's it's quite an event and like i say you only have to see it once and people will be hooked for life The thrill of tuna fishing, that emotional high, brings Pete back to the fishery every season from June to October. But there are other intangible reasons that Pete keeps getting back on the water every year to fish for bluefin tuna. He is simply a fisherman to his very core. There are fishermen and there are people that catch fish, but the real fishing industry as a whole, it's not just an income producer, it's not just a vocation, it's a way of life, it's a lifestyle, it's not a vocation. And everybody that does it has done it their whole lives or generationally knows that. I love doing it. Um, I don't think anybody can put a can put a reason on that. There's fishermen that do fish that could make a lot more money doing other things and they just love to be on the water. I love to be on the water, I love to catch big fish. I've targeted tuna my whole life. It just it keeps me on the water, which is where I'd rather be. Maybe it's a connection to my family roots. I don't know if it goes that deep or not. I'm, I'm not a philosopher that way. All I know is what works for me, and I'd rather be on the water than on land. Thanks for listening to Coastal Conversations today as we featured these two stories about sustainable Maine seafood. Special thanks to True Finn, Gulf of Maine Research Institute, Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, Brian Pierce and his crew, the Portland Fish Exchange, Ben Martens and Marie Hudson, Kyle Foley, Dr. Walt Golay, Dr. Lisa Kerr, and Elijah Miller, Jen Levin, Pete Speeches, and Michael Flynn. These stories were produced by Galen Koch of the First Coast as part of an Island Institute podcast called From the Sea Up. The podcast is made possible by the Fund for Maine Islands and a partnership between the Island Institute, College of the Atlantic, Luke's Lobster, Maine Sea Grant, and the First Coast. We are grateful to all of them for sharing their stories with Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. 
can catch the latest episode of Coastal Conversations from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM or find past shows in the WERU.org Public Affairs Archives. You might also like to catch our sister program, Talk of the Towns with Ron Beard, on the second Wednesday of each month at 4 p.m. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Until next time, this is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.